Hello and welcome to Sony Music Presents Time to Talk. I'm your host, Sean Sennett. Joining me today is a very special guest, former Australian cricket captain, Steve Waugh. Anyone with a vague interest in cricket will know that Steve Waugh occupies legendary status. He scored over 10,000 runs for Australia, took 92 wickets, had a top score of 200, which he scored against the West Indies in the West Indies. He led Australia to a record 16 consecutive wins as test captain. In fact, over 57 games as captain, he had a 72% win ratio, which is remarkable. He also was a revolutionary one-day cricket player. But more than that, he's also a philanthropist. Through his work with the Steve Waugh Foundation, he's helped thousands of children attain better lives at home, and in particular in India. India is the subject of Steve's new book, The Spirit of Cricket. Reading about Steve's charitable work has given me a better understanding of a remarkable man. The book not only shows a love of cricket in the most humble surroundings, but it shows the commitment of a man looking to help people less fortunate. I'm very pleased to introduce you to Steve Waugh. First of all, congratulations on the book. Thank you. It's a huge coffee table book. It's very expansive. 220 photos, I think. Uh, yeah, it is. It's 220 photos. It was um, over 18 days, and I took roughly 20,000 photos to um, uh, on the trip. I went with Trent Park, who's an incredible photographer as part of the Magnum Photo Agency, and he basically coached me while I was there because I wanted to elevate my photography to a different level. I, I, the idea was to capture the spirit of cricket, why is cricket a religion in India? And um, so we visited uh, a huge amount of um, uh, places in 18 days. Uh, we went to the mountains, we went to the desert, um, to the beaches. Um, we we uh, photographed blind cricketers, uh, physically challenged cricketers, uh, Women's Cricket Academy, and then anywhere from a three-year-old to a hundred-year-old. The, the photos are incredible. and I can't believe you took 20,000 yeah. shots. Um, lucky yeah. it wasn't filmed. Well, huh? that's the good thing about digital. You can sort of shoot away and you can sort of – get a gauge of where you're going by looking instant feedback. Um, but obviously, you know, we were shooting from like six in the morning till seven or eight at night every day. It was nonstop. So there's just so much to see over there, so much to try and capture. So um, time went by really quickly. So some of the photos that really struck out for me were the ones of the monks, particularly with the Himalayas on the background. Yeah, it was a, an amazing experience. To, um, to uh, That was up at Dharamshala, which um, home of the Dalai Lama. And, uh, yeah, we had a game of career with the, the monks uh, in a paddock uh, with the Himalayas as the backdrop, and that was um, an incredible, uh, surreal experience, really, for me. And um, just watching these guys play, they're really good, good cricketers, and I thought they'd play with tennis balls because the outfield was so bumpy and chance of injury. But, no, they got the hard cricket balls out, and there was folks who hit the shin and the knees and the, the ribs, and one guy hit in the cheekbone and the face. I thought he'd broken his cheek for sure, but didn't even flinch. So... When it was my turn to bat, I'm thinking, geez, these guys are uh, a lot braver than me, so I don't know how I'm going to go. But um, it ended up being um, just a, a fantastic couple of hours. It was interesting, uh, as you said, you saw some uh, people with physical uh, challenges, as you put it. That photo of the man running into bowl, basically pole vaulting at the bowling crease. He's got one leg, right? Yeah, it was um, it's something that caught me off guard. I didn't expect that. And when I saw this guy run in, then he had this, um, like a bamboo pole as a crutch underneath his arm, and he sort of... You know, got to the crease and leapt in the air and landed uh, on top of this basically this bamboo crutch and then then bowled the ball over the top of it. It was um, it was something I couldn't quite uh, comprehend first up and then another there's another bowl of the same thing. He flew through the air with a big bamboo six foot piece of bamboo. It was like a flying ninja warrior through the air. And these guys were uh, amazing athletes. It was poetry in motion. Really, their actions were incredible. And um, to try and capture to do them justice is. Um, was something I tried to do. You caught up with some old friends too, Sasha and Tendulkar and Raul Dravid. Um, 
What's it like sort of seeing those guys now when you're not playing cricket with them? Can you, you connect as friends, as people? Yeah, we are. You don't really see yourself as cricketers anymore. It's just um, just normal, average guys, I guess, who play cricket. And now it's a lot more relaxed because when you're playing international sport, it's pretty intense and pretty, pretty um, you know, you're pretty full on and you don't really have time to make too many close friends in the opposition because you're constantly representing your country and a lot, lots at stake and you don't spend much time with these guys. But when you retire and get to spend time with them, you realise they're, they're pretty much the same as you are. Um, common interests and uh, it, most of the guys are pretty down to earth, uh, particularly Sachin and Rahul Dravid. When you first went to India, it was 1986, and you said it was frustrating for you because obviously cricket is a religion in India. You're treated like gods. You couldn't get off the bus. Yeah. And did you have an inclination that you wanted to start taking photos that early in your life? Well, I always took a camera with me on tour, so... Um, uh, and I generally sat at the front of the bus because I like seeing what was going on out the bus window. And these are countries and places I'd never been to. So it was, um, you know, being curious by nature and inquisitive, it was just so many things to see out the bus window. But I think in India and places like that in the subcontinent where you get swarmed and swamped and you've got godlike status, you really can't get off the bus and just go walking down the street or take the photos you want of, you know, seeing games of cricket. I mean, I would have loved to have taken shots while I was playing, but just wasn't possible. So in the back of my mind, I thought when I retire from cricket, um, I may be a bit lower, not as intense. Um, I'll, I'll be a chance to get in these shots that I've uh, always wanted to take. I once read somewhere that when the Australians went to the West Indies in 1973, the only person that had a camera was Max Walker. Yeah, that'd be right. I, I had plenty of chats with Max. He, uh, he took some incredible shots. I'd love to see some more of his work. Um, I assume his family's got all those photos, but he was, I guess, ahead of his time, and he was really the only one on that um, – he was telling me the only one on the team that took photographs. Uh, um, Amazing. Yeah, it is. And, uh, you know, it was just um, probably wasn't the done thing. And even when I was playing cricket um, in the early 80s, 90s, uh, there wasn't many guys took cameras. But, of course, now everyone's got a camera on their iPhone. But back then you had to take proper cameras and not many guys put them in their, in their bags. How do you find the sort of ubiquitous nature of phones these days, the fact that everybody has a camera? Do you think it's a good thing or a bad thing? I think it's a good thing because you're capturing you know, those moments that otherwise would be forgotten. That's the great thing about a photo is that um, it takes you back to a place and a time and and, um, and instantly revives what happened in that moment. I think without a, a your photograph, you can't, you're sort of guessing what happened and you, and you forget a lot of times. But I sort of described it to someone yesterday. Um, I guess having a mobile phone or an Apple phone or things like that, it's like playing a game of T20 cricket. Sort of, it's quick, instantaneous, and anyone can do it. And it's it's over in a flash and it doesn't take a lot of um, fine-tuning, but you've got a proper camera like a Canon camera, which I've had for a number of years, and, and they supported this trip and, and basically funded the trip. Then uh, it's a bit like test match. You've got to work out the settings. You've got to take your time and a bit of expertise and precision required and a bit of experience and know-how and um, end up with, a, with this amazing uh, end product. I'm curious with the book, um, there's some great shots early in the morning, late in the evening. When you were travelling for that 18 days through different regions of India, did you have a mental map in your head how you wanted the book to look, what you're looking for? Um, sort of, but I wasn't really sure. I've never done a photography book like this before, so it was, it was a bit better my comfort zone and, um, and I was trying to learn having a crash course in those 18 days as well. To you know, the, the goal was to get it off the automatic setting, which like 95% of people put it on. I wanted to put it on a manual and understand shutter speed and aperture and ISO and try and work out the light and you know, get, get the – the, the setup right for the photograph. So um, yeah, that was a huge learning curve for me. But um, yeah, we had some things set in place that we knew we wanted to go to certain places. But I also wanted to have a, the freedom to get off the team bus or seven or eight of us travelling together. We saw a game of cricket, just pull up and, and then go out and just capture that moment um, as it happened. 
looking at the shots, you're obviously getting out there and having a hit with people. There's one particular area. Um, is it 22 acres of cricket fields? Um, yeah, that's the Azad or the, the Oval Maidan, yeah, and they're um, they're pretty amazing because there's thousands of cricketers playing all at once. This is where Satchington Okaluni's craft, and um, on a Sunday, it's just all roads lead to these places, and there's endless games of cricket, people into, into, intertwining, interwoven. I don't know how they don't run into each other because they're hitting balls up in the air and someone will run and dodge 20 fields when take a catch and, and all of a sudden they know that person's in their game. So, um, yeah, that's, to me, is really, really where the spirit of cricket uh, shows itself and, and surfaces. Well, when you retired from playing, um, you obviously made a conscious decision not to become a commentator uh, or a coach. Was that um, – what was your mindset there, Steve? What, why did you sort of go down that road? Because it's very uncommon what you've done. Yeah, um, well, it wasn't a conscious decision really, but I played cricket for 20 years and I'd always been interested in, in getting business and charity and doing entrepreneurial things. And um, I just figured if I went back into commentary, I'd be on the same circle I was on for the last 20 years and I had a young family, three young kids. I wanted to spend time with them over the, the Christmas breaks, which cricket is played in. Um, uh, I became a, the privilege of Australian of the Year, which was the first year I retired. So I was busy doing a lot of um, functions with that. Uh, and then uh, the charity took off in Australia. I had the one existing in India already, so extremely busy with that. And then um, entrepreneurial pursuits. I've, I've written 13 books before this one, so there was lots going on. And um, and during that time, uh, after that, my wife had a serious stroke, so that was a couple of years in rehab. So there was, I was so busy, really, that um, there was no time for commentary or being involved in the game directly. Yeah. Uh, obviously, uh, you met Mother Teresa uh, at one point in your life. Did that Was that a very profound moment for you? Looking back, it was at the time. I just um, I wanted to meet her and did it briefly, and she had this amazing presence and aura about her. And I just wanted to try and maybe emulate her in a small way and get involved in charities myself. So, from that point of view, it definitely was. It um, it was a catalyst for me getting into philanthropic work. And um, yeah, but it was just a real honour to meet her. Only say only briefly, but this person had done incredible work for the poorest of the poor a whole life. Um, and you build those sort of people up in your mind and sometimes when you meet them, they're a bit of a letdown, but she certainly was and she had this um, incredible aura about her. I've read a couple of your books. I've read books about you. Um, meeting Reverend Stevens, I'd imagine, must have been very profound for you. Could you tell me something about that? Because I understand you might have uh, had a, uh, lost a test match or you had an extra day to yourself and there's a, a piece of paper slipped under your door asking you to come to see this school. Yeah, we lost a test match in Calcutta in four days and um, and got home and there was a letter under my door from a, a lady who was involved in charity in Calcutta and she said, can you come out and visit a place called Udayan, which is a rehabilitation centre for kids who have leprosy or their parents have leprosy. That was founded by um, the late Reverend James Stevens, who came from England and then stayed for 40 odd years after that. But he took kids out of leprosy colonies, gave them a chance of school, education, um, you know, how, housing. Uh, clothing, uh, gave them fantastic food. And these kids became um, happy and content and then they went on to get jobs and they go back and they support their families. So I went to see this place uh, on the day of the, supposedly the fifth day of the test match because we lost in, in four days. I was amazed by it, and, but I, I realised then that there was no one there to support the girls. So I started funding for girls wing at Udayan, which is um, now houses over 100 girls. I mean, that moment in your uh, the books you've written, you've spoken about that. It's very heartbreaking, isn't it, when you find out that why there's no reason for the girls in these schools? Yeah, yeah. Well, the, you know, the girls, boys are the breadwinners, I guess, um, and that's why they weren't um, uh, involved in Udayan at that stage. And the thing was, I asked, well, what do the girls do? And 
the answer was by seven or eight, they were probably selling themselves on the street. And I just had my first daughter. So I guess that was a light bulb moment where I heard something and I couldn't just walk away and pretend I didn't hear it. So I had to do something about it. People write these books sort of worshipping sports people and it's life or death scenarios, but it's not really, it's only sport. Does yeah. does Have you got a whole new context of your uh, attitude to sport now that you've had this experience with India? Um, yeah, I was always a big believer in sports and a game. I, I never was worried too much about losing sport. If I, again, if I gave it everything, then I could walk away. And I was, you know, I, I never worry about it afterwards. I always figured that someone's going to win, someone's going to lose. And if you committed and you give it 100%, then walk away and don't don't worry about it. Don't uh, shed any tears over it. It is only a game, but obviously it's reinforced when you go to third world countries and you see you know, a lot of people live for India, 800 million people but below the poverty line, just struggling with food on the table, um, that certainly gives you a good, good perspective when you complain about you know getting out cheaply or you haven't had a good day at cricket. Um, it's not so bad after all. I put a thing on uh, Facebook saying I'd be chatting to you. Any questions? And there was a whole bunch of them. And one of the guys said, it must have been hell for kids that lived in your street growing up, uh, yeah. having the War Brothers batting. You must be like none for a thousand. How bad was it for those other kids? I never thought about it that way. Um, but they were all our mates from school and um, – we were very competitive. We, we probably did hog the batting a bit. I must have been looking back on it. But, um, yeah, we just couldn't get enough of that. That was life in the in the 70s and um, the early 80s growing up. That you go out school holidays. Your mum and dad say, just make sure you're home for dinner. So you go out the whole day playing soccer, tennis, cricket, um, improvising different games, table tennis, whatever was going on, um, you'd play sports. So, um, yeah, that was that's just the way it was uh, in that era. And, um yeah, we probably did uh, make it make it pretty tough round, mates. Who were your heroes when you were watching sport as a kid, cricket in particular, I suppose? Um, just thinking, sorry, uh, probably uh, watched a lot of tennis. So it was Bjorn Borg and John McEnroe. That was the year those guys were playing. Soccer was sort of Pelé. Um, I love watching the Olympics. Um, so any sport, really, that we used to get up to watch the FA Cup in the middle of the night. Um, I guess from cricket point of view, someone like Doug Wallace or Viv Richards, um, so, yeah, I was into sort of all types of sports, but, um, yeah, no one in particular. But it was just um, whatever sport was on, we, we definitely watch it. You're right, though. I mean, Borg was the original Iceman, wasn't he? Yeah, for sure. I mean, he retired at 26, but I think he won 11 or 12 majors or something, or 13 maybe, and, um, yeah, incredible sports person. Um, yeah, look back, and he was totally the opposite of Macaron. Macaron was, um, you know, everything was laid out, and he, you know, he, nothing was hidden, but with, with Borg, he didn't know what was going on inside his head. You mentioned Viv as one of your heroes, and of course, one of the big moments for you was bouncing Viv Richards' consecutive balls. Was that you making a statement of intent? Uh, looking back, it was, but uh, I was struggling in Test Creed up to that point and got to the second innings. Uh, oh, sorry, I got out cheaply in the first innings, and I thought, well, if I don't do something here, my career is going to be over before it starts. And I just, something inside just clicked, and I thought, well, go for it, don't hold back, don't be scared, don't be intimidated, just um, let it rip like you did. Probably in the backyard. So Viv came out to bat, and there was. Um, just, just seeing the right time to bounce him. And then I did it second time, enjoyed it. And I knew Viv was getting a bit ruffled and tried it a third time. And then I threw in the slower ball, which probably should have been given out to LB, which wasn't. But I certainly got Viv's attention. From that moment on, um, I think I spoke to Viv afterwards. And I think I earned their respect. And I sort of um, almost graduated as a test cricket by taking the windies on because not many people have sort of um, given it to them before, and I got 90 in that second innings, and that was really the start of my career. I heard once you said that Jeff Boycott gave you some great advice, that when you walk out to bat, you've got to look like you mean to be there. You need to set some intent. Yeah, it was a long time ago, playing, I think uh, it might have been County Creek for Somerset, uh, or it might have been a game in Scarborough, I remember, and I got out cheaply and came off, and Jeff Boycott, I hadn't met him before, but um, 
gave me some honest feedback. He said, oh, you're walking out like you're, you're walking to a funeral and you know, you're bad body language and you're out before you go out in the middle. And I hadn't really thought about it that way before, but it was, was pretty good advice that the way you carry yourself and your body language um, in a lot of ways can, can uh, determine how you go out in the middle. I imagine he wasn't playing test cricket when he gave you that advice. No, I think he's well retired, yeah. You mentioned in the book, you know, you're quite happy to mentor people. What's the um, – when does the mentoring come in? Obviously, as captain of the Australian side, you're giving advice to people. Do cricketers hand advice out willingly to their opposition after the game when they're having a drink? Um, I was always – never worried me. Um, I think I just – I always backed myself and it didn't matter what I gave to the opposition. When you got down to the that one-on-one battle, it was um, – you know, it still took a lot of – mental fortitude and courage to overcome the opposition. I always back myself to do that. So I was more than happy to give uh, advice to opposition players. Um, you know, we sat many times with, I guess, the lesser known teams in those days, like, you know, teams like Sri Lanka and Bangladesh and, and happy to, and Zimbabwe and talk hours and hours in the, in the change room. But at the same time, I was happy to talk to anyone because um, I think that's a sort of, uh, I think you do it at, at, even at international level. If someone asks you a genuine question, then uh, you just try and show them respect by giving them an honest feedback. I know when you were captain, you had the privilege of sitting down with Sir Donald Bradman a couple of times to chat. Did he give you any advice on your game? No, I, I didn't really ask him about my game. It was more about his thoughts and his career. And I only had an hour with him personally. It went by in about five seconds. And I can't remember half the questions I asked him, but I just remember him being sharp as a tack and, and a little bit surprised that he loved one-day cricket. I thought he'd be full on for test cricket, but he enjoyed the modern game and he embraced all those changes. And it was just to hook, talking pretty much about his career, but um, yeah, I would have loved to spend more time with him, but obviously it, he was nearly 90 and it was only six months I think, before he passed away. And But he was still like talking to someone who was in their 20s and very sharp, very quick with his, uh, with his answers and his thoughts. Uh, is it true you asked him why he was so much better than everybody else and he said he wasn't, he could just concentrate better? Um, something along those lines, I can't remember exactly, but yeah, that w- it would have been probably that. He, he did downplay himself a bit and Things like that, and I said, "Did you ever get hit?" And he said, "Oh, yeah, I got hit once in the in the in the bicep." And I'm thinking, Geez, he's done pretty well for hit once in the arm in his whole career because most blokes get hit a few times in the head or something. But he was obviously that good that you know that, that sort of thing um, didn't happen to him very much. And uh, but he certainly downplayed it by saying that it was just concentration because it, it was certainly more than that. You know, I was kind of looking through your career highlights, and uh, when you scored that 200 over there in Jamaica. Um, that was like, you know, the whole of Australia kind of stopped and thought, wow, this is a changing of the guard, obviously. And I'd heard that apparently you sort of developed a mental application of turning on and off during the course of an innings. Is that true? And is that something you apply to your own life now? Yeah, I think you learn to compartmentalise and put lock things away in a box. And that was something that I probably had to do is in my early career where it was, it was a real struggle for the team and for myself. And a lot of things coming in and out of your head, um, a lot of advice, um, people having opinions on yourself and getting distracted. So it was one way of really protecting myself that, um, you know, putting things away and when I had to focus on them, then I could bring them to the forefront. But otherwise, I'd just lock them away until they're required. So that compartmentalisation, I think, has helped me in cricket and probably helped me in life as well, that, um, you know, to focus on things one thing at a time. And if even though I've got many things going on in my life, to um, give it the full attention and move on to the next thing. When you, uh, you know, went to England and scored those big hundreds, I mean, it was 27 tests before you got 100, but uh, you contributed a lot during that period, a couple of five-wicket hauls, yeah. high scores over 50. How did you change – how did you become Steve Waugh, a guy that did really well, and not many people get to play for Australia, to going up 
whatever gear it was to becoming a you know one of the greatest players of all time. What, what was the shift there for you? Uh, well, I think looking back, I obviously had the natural talent. It was just trying to harness that and work out my style and and um, and do it do it my way. And uh, that took a while for me. And, and the self belief once I got the hundred as a batsman, it's like a graduation. I kept putting more and more pressure on myself to do it. And you're right, I took three five wicket hauls before I got a test century. So. Um, yeah, it was a little bit crazy looking back on it. When I bowled, I was relaxed and I was just natural. When I batted, I just put this immense pressure on myself because I was earmarked as, you know, headlines were the next Bradman when I started playing for Australia. They were crazy headlines, but there's so much expectation and pressure that um, I started to believe it that I had to score hundreds straight away and be successful and, and dominate. And I was playing to other people's expectations and not playing the way I wanted to play. So it took a while to learn. Once I got the first hundred, then I relaxed and thought, well, why are you putting so much pressure on yourself? You've got to just learn to do it your way. And is it true that the bowling didn't mean as much to you personally and therefore you relaxed, you've, you were very good at it? No, it meant as much to me, but um, but I knew deep down I was a batsman first and, and a bowler second. So it was frustrating to to have these you know, really good results with the ball and not so good with the bat because I knew that I was letting myself down. So that, that was a hard part. And then... As soon as I'd focused on that, I put more pressure on my batting. So it was just a matter of learning to cope with that. And um, But I love bowling and I love the, the pressure of bowling and I love the how I could sort of – was a release of the pressure when I could get out and bowl some bumpers and, and get stuck in. Um, they've been playing a lot of old games on TV, uh, uh, on Foxtel or something like that, and they've cut them down from 50 overs to basically run for an hour. So it's like watching T T20 on steroids. It's just all action. Um there's, I flicked it on randomly. I've seen this probably 10 times. Every time you take the catch, it's a thing of wonder. Roger Harper hits it. There's somebody running towards you. There's a sight screen in front of you. Have you seen the catch recently? Yeah, it was one of my first games, and it was a night day-night game, and Craig McDermott was the bowler, and Roger Harper hit this massive off-drive, and I was in the inner circle, and it just went usually into the air. I didn't really know where I was, but in pure instinct, you know, you've got to run as fast as you can, head down and then try and look up at the right time when the ball was going to be there. And it just sort of happened almost in slow motion, ran the full distance, didn't see Murphy's, didn't see the side screen, didn't see the, the fence. And this ball is lobbed in one hand like someone just dropped it from about a foot. It was just, I don't know how to explain, but it just sort of landed in perfectly. And then I, I came to uh, my, my senses and realised that geez, I'd nearly run into a couple of danger area here. But at the time, it was just total focus on trying to take the catch. And... Um, and I didn't learn my lesson because about 15 years later, I ran into Jason Gillespie. So maybe I should have taken note early on. <laughs> What's next for you, Steve? You're planning on uh, another photo book? I mean, you've sold a million books, which is incredible. I mean, if you had never played cricket, you'd be a best-selling author. That's what we'd be getting praise for. Yeah, I, I enjoyed the process of writing. And if you ask my school teacher in English at high school, I would have thought, no, he's never going to write a book because I never read a book until I left high school. But um yeah, this has been an incredible project. Um, really enjoy this. Self-published book, so that's another challenge. Um, got a photo exhibition at 21 Oxford Street painting from the play box in Sydney starting next week. So that's the 70 best photos. Um, so that'll be open for three or four months. And then uh, a documentary coming out on the ABC on November 17 called Capturing Cricket, which was behind the scenes look at this photographic uh, journey. So that's um, been a bit of fun helping put that together. So it's been a busy uh, last nine months, and uh, I'd love to do the Spirit of Cricket um, Australia version, or perhaps one in England, or maybe one in the Caribbean. But um, really, got to concentrate on this one, selling the the book for this one, and people can get it at steveward.com.au. So that's um, what I'm doing at the moment. But I'm always looking for the next project. But um, at the moment, it's um, fully focused on this one. 
Do you think you'll tour the exhibition around the country? Yeah, we'd love to, but um, need need some support with that. I think I uh, need a bit of you know, help, whether it's government funding or, or or someone getting involved, because it is a costly exercise. But I'd love to take it to country areas in the state, and mm. even we've had an offer to take it to London already. But um, yeah, I'd love to take it around Australia for sure. I read an article that Dean Jones wrote a while ago, um, saying when he got to his early fifties, he missed just having a game of cricket. Uh, mm. He didn't want to play a test match, obviously, at that age. Um, do you ever sort of wake up one day and think, oh, I just want to put the pads on and go and have a hit? Uh, not really. I mean, I got that love back when I went to India, actually, and uh, when I was taking a lot of photos of kids playing, um, you know, the Oval Maidan in Mumbai or in the streets of Calcutta, then uh, often I'd take some photos and then to sort of um, show my respect to the, the kids and who are playing, I'd then I'd have a game of cricket when I played on the beaches and, in, a, in front of the Himalayan mountains in the back alleys. I got cleaned up most more times than not, but I really enjoyed the fact that it was just simple. You know, it was just a ball. Um, they gave me a bat and the stumps were made out of bricks or fence palings or they draw some chalk on the wall and away you go. So it was like playing um, cricket as a young young boy again in the western suburbs of Sydney. Well, it's nice when you went to the palace, you got the extra 18 runs you needed. <laughs> yeah, that's, um, yeah, it's, uh, it was pretty amazing going to the Maharaja's Palace in Baroda and I'd I'd been there back in uh, 1986 without even recognising it until I got to the Palace and thought we'd played here before with the Australian cricket side. Um, but, yeah, that was a, another amazing experience. It'll be like the, playing cricket with the monks in front of the Himalayas to ask yeah. the Maharaja for a game of cricket in his palace and he hadn't done it for 40 years and all of a sudden we were playing in the main dining room with Ming vases and expensive chandeliers and uh, an ornate paintings all around us. It's a great photo. Among many, many great photos. So did Curtly Ambrose get your vote on Dancing with the Stars? Uh, tell you, they're pretty busy to, to watch too much TV, but Curtly's a good mate of mine now. And um, whilst we had that moment in the middle, we sort of both respect each other. And uh, no, I would definitely voted for him because he's, he's a nice guy and he's a funny bloke and probably the you know the best bowler I faced. And uh, so I've got huge respect for him. The famous game against South Africa. Uh, did you say to Herschel Gibbs, you've dropped the World Cup, mate? Well, pretty close. I mean, if, if it wasn't, I, I don't want to change the story now because people love it and it's um, sort of folklore, but it, it was along those lines. And, um, you know, we had a running battle all day and it was going back and forth and I couldn't resist saying something to him as he walked past me in the, the middle of the pitch because he'd said a fair bit to me earlier in the day when he scored 100. So it was it was one of those uh, moments where it was a bit of a ding-dong battle and, and thankfully I came out on top that day. So with sports, Steve... Um, is it a case of what happens in the middle really is in its own special place? It's just a vortex there that professional people, can they just walk off and then they the mask drops, they become regular people again uh, in terms so. of how they interact with each other? Yeah, people have different personalities when they play. I mean, I was sort of really focused. Someone like Murphy's love interacting with the crowd, but it doesn't really reflect their, their real personality away from the game. I think a lot of times you walk on the field and it's like you put on this persona, almost put on this mask, and that's the way you play. But once you get off the field... Most people are very different to what you perceive them to be. Big thanks to Steve Waugh for joining us today on Sony Music Presents Time to Talk. He really is a remarkable man. And if you get the chance, check out his book, The Spirit of Cricket India. The photos are something else. If you're lucky enough to be in Sydney, pop along to the exhibition at uh, the Playbox on Oxford Street in Paddington. The ABC is showing a documentary called Capturing Cricket on the project on the 17th of November. Um, you should definitely head along to stevewar.com.au where you can see more about his charitable work that the Foundation does. And if you've enjoyed the podcast today, think about making a donation. 
Thanks for joining me today and thanks to Steve Waugh again. I'm your host, Sean Sennett, and we'll see you again back here very soon.